Blog Talk Radio. Live from Los Angeles, the Win Without Competing show with Dr. Arlene Barrow, career coach one and author of Win Without Competing. I'm Dr. Arlene. Welcome to my show. I will teach you how to use my RiceFit method, which will empower you to achieve your career and life goals. My guest today is Dr. Deborah Schlein, who is a physician, entrepreneur, and author of nonfiction and fiction. Her latest novel, an international thriller entitled Rabbit in the Moon, was just named Best Books 2008 Awards Finalist by USA Books. I invited Dr. Schlein with us today to share her passion and how it propels her to succeed in both her professional and personal life. I met Deborah in 1995. The phone rang, I picked it up, and Deborah was calling me to introduce herself. It turns out that we were doing business with the same fast-growing new company who was hiring rapidly. Both of us were working on executive searches for them, and Deborah was curious about me. Instead of seeing me as a competitor, she viewed me as a potential collaborator. Over the years, we worked together on a number of executive searches. Deborah, you selected medicine as your first career. How did passion propel you into medicine, and why family medicine? Well, first of all, let me say hello, and good to talk with you again, Arlene. Um, my passion for medicine, I think, started early when I was uh, just a, a young kid. Uh, my dad was a physician. He was an internist, but he was the old-fashioned internist. He even made house calls. And um, I remember riding with him and even going into the kitchens of some of his patients and sitting and listening and, and being very impressed with how much, uh, how much respect and, and how much... Um, care he gave to his patients and, and vice versa. So, you know, from early on I decided that was what, that was for me. Now, why family medicine versus internal medicine? Actually, uh, just as I was finishing up medical school, the whole idea of reinventing the generalist had started, and there was a movement to, to begin residency programs for family medicine, which would include not just taking care of an adult patient, but also pediatrics and even doing some OBGYN. And this, to me, was really quite interesting, and I started to research uh, possible residency programs after, uh, after medical school. And um, long story, but I got married in, in medical school, and uh, my husband uh, talked me into going to California. There was an opportunity out there for a residency program, which we did together, and uh, then we started um, it, with the same group in which we had done a, a residency I believe that is the Permanente group. Can you tell us uh, why you stayed at Kaiser Permanente? 
And how long were you there? Okay. Well, first of all, uh, Kaiser Permanente was one of the first HMOs or managed care organizations in the country. And um, but it was it's a very unique model. It's what's called a, a multi-specialty group, a, a medical group model versus uh, what's called an independent practice association, where you may have individual doctors that you know work under an umbrella of the same organization. Uh, basically, what Kaiser offered was the opportunity to practice in a hospital setting, so that my office could be within the hospital and uh, my patients. Uh, could be seen in the clinic in the, in, on the second floor, say, and then if they had to be admitted, they were admitted onto the fourth or the fifth floor. If they had to go to the emergency room, that was uh, downstairs on the first floor. All the labs were in the same building, all the subspecialists. So um, that, uh, you know, that was the appeal. And um, I, we, my husband and I both practiced there together. Uh, again, the appeal was, was uh, the ability to work together there, too, and um, have the same schedules. And we stayed there for almost 10 years. Well, why did you then decide to leave? Because I know you did leave. What prompted you to leave? Okay, good question. Um, and these are not all, all easy to answer in a, in a second. But basically, um, we were, I was very happy practicing at Kaiser for a long time. I really uh, I felt I you know, found my stride. I was loving uh, patients. And, and, you know, and basically because uh, I grew up in, in a setting, a very stable medical setting in terms of, you know, my dad's practice, I, I had always thought that wherever I started practicing medicine, I would stay forever. Um, but about, I guess, into the 10th year, I started to get a little itchy. I, I wanted to get more involved in some of the policy um, of the group, and um, I had already been involved with, with teaching at the university. I had, uh, my husband and I had been doing some clinical research projects, and um, uh, we wanted to expand on that, and there was l a little bit less opportunity to do that within the Kaiser setting. Uh, and so I started to take an accounting of, of where I was at that, that tenth year and where I wanted to go and, and started to think about other opportunities. In terms of accounting, can you talk about it from two perspectives, from the perspective of your passion and the perspective of the right fit? Right. Well, I think the passion itself is I've, I've always, no matter what I've done, I've always felt, you know, obviously you have to do it at your best. And part of practicing medicine for me meant being able to be uh, accountable to my patients whenever they needed me. And what happened was my practice had grown so large. I was actually the only woman in my department for many, many years. Um, I had over 3,000 patients by the time I left, and the uh, administration was not willing to close that practice. So that I, I decided that perhaps, um, you know, I needed to look at, at other, other practice settings to see if, if I could translate that same passion by being able to practice uh, in, a, in a setting that didn't um, put me at odds with what you know what I felt was best for for the patient care. So, um, am I correct that your the time that you would spend with the patients had to decrease as a result of the patient volume? Correct. What happened was that in that year, uh, the competition in the in the community had gotten uh, much um, tougher, and uh, some of the administration had decided. Uh, to start to, you know, to cut down on the time that they were allotting us to really to see the patients. And, I, and my husband and I both felt that that really was not acceptable. And um, we, uh, of course, spoke up about it and felt that we were fighting an, an uphill battle at the time. And because I had an opportunity at that point to go 
uh, to the university where I had been teaching already, uh, I, I kind of left left at that chance and and uh, and made a what turned out to be a wonderful decision. Was UCLA? Am I was correct? Was UCLA correct? Okay. Right. Tell us what you did at UCLA because I know you did a variety of things and you also went to graduate school while you were there. Right. Um, well, one of the things, as I said, that that, that started, I started to feel um, I wanted to get more involved in, in uh, overall, in understanding the overall healthcare system in a way that would allow me to have a greater impact. And at UCLA, I was offered the opportunity to become the director of uh, primary care for the student health service, which was uh, a unit that served all 33,000 undergraduates and graduate students on the campus. Um, and um, one of the things that I was able to um, to get uh, the administration to promise me was that I, I could really redirect the program in any way I wanted to. They gave me sort of free reign. I think at the time they didn't, believe, they didn't expect me to do what I did, but, um, you know, the, the student health was in the basement of the hospital, and up until that point it was, it was really a place where, where the kids would come for cuts and bruises, but nothing really um, uh, very um, chronic. And so I... I decided to take the program, the, the things that I had learned at Kaiser, the the, uh, the good things of the Kaiser system, and to apply that to the student health service. And I actually uh, hired brand new staff. We had all board certified physicians. Uh, we started developing clinical research programs uh, and um, um, networking with the uh, health, the school of public health, as well as the school, the business school. And so uh, I, I be, and I was very much encouraged by my my boss, which was terrific. So that that really was a big difference from from the Kaiser days. Give us some other insight. Um, am I? Did you do some lab work there as well? And also decided to pursue another degree. Right. Well, I, what happened is that after I left Kaiser, there was a there was a little bit of a lull. I. I was offered the job at Student Health, but I wasn't ready to take that because I actually thought that I wanted to uh, become more involved in health policy. And I had a friend who talked me into starting law school <laughs> at um, uh, Whittier Law School, which is a part-time night, night program. It was a, uh, um, a very, uh, very well-thought-of program and actually was a brand-new health policy program that, that, uh, uh, that I was enrolled in. But... Um, when the you know when the the people at UCLA said you know you better decide one way or the other if you want this job I decided to take the job at UCLA and still go to law school part time in the second year of law school my boss at UCLA said if you switch to the MBA program we'll pay for it uh, because we think that um, that you really have uh, good administrative skills and um, we'd like to see you work here full time and so. I, again, another fork in the road decision-wise, but decided that I really, really enjoyed the administrative side of, of medicine and um, wasn't really interested in being a lawyer and uh, switched over to the MBA program, which, incidentally, I talked my husband into doing as well. Aha. Well, we're going to hear more about that later when we probe into your personal life. Okay. Going a bit back into the childhood, I wanted to, before we look at you from the perspective of a novelist, I wanted to talk a bit more about your childhood. In terms of your dad, when he took you around to the different homes, how did you feel 
as far as connecting to the passion of a physician. Not what did you think, but how did you feel? Because the seed was planted early. Right. I, I think the, the way that patients looked at my father, the way that um, it was very clear that they, they, they loved him, I mean, they really respected him and that, you know, they, um, he almost became part of their families. And I thought that was really a unique and wonderful thing. Um, and so, you know, I also grew up with the Marcus Welby sort of image of the doctor, which my father, I really felt, was, so that um, that I became, you know, very excited about the idea of being able to uh, to be that kind of doctor. Did your dad encourage you? Yeah, I think he did. I mean, he, he really was very uh, willing to let me do whatever I wanted to do, although I must say that I also liked to write even early on, and when I told him, that that I uh, was even thinking about being a writer at one point. He said, "Well, you can always be a writer, but a doctor is something that, you know, he 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 made me feel that that was really something even more important." And so, I suppose I took uh, some of that advice, even unsaid advice. Did you go to his office when you were a child? Oh yeah, I worked. I actually often uh, would would uh, act as his secretary when his secretary was out. Uh, in, in How the old were you when you were acting as his secretary? <laughs> <laughs> well, it would, it would be during vacations, but I was probably 13, 14 years old. Terrific. Because by the time I was 15, I was already working in labs in the hospital. I, I uh, was was um, also very interested in research and, and felt that that was an opportunity to get a, a feel for, for that side of medicine as well. Did your mother have a role in shaping your career? My mother was always extremely proud of anything that I did. And um, I have to say she was the one who would drive me to the hardware store when I was doing my science fair projects. Uh, she endured when I had mice in the basement, uh, white mice for my one of my science fair projects. And, uh, you know, I think her encouragement and her, her sense of pride in what I, what I was able to accomplish was was certainly a factor. Over the years, when you changed from Kaiser, for example, to UCLA, uh, did you consult with your dad at all? Did he make any comments about his thoughts about what you were doing? I mean, I know you consulted with your husband. I'm right. just curious if you <laughs> consulted with your dad. I I think at that point I kind of told him what I had decided to do. Uh, okay. Um, because I will say this, my my dad, who, who I love dearly, is less of a risk taker than I am, I think. And I think if I had told him before I left Kaiser that I was leaving a very stable uh, position which had guaranteed pension and, you know, if I had wanted to, could have stayed there. And many of my colleagues are still there 30 years later. Um you know, he might have been a little bit uh, wary of such a decision. How many years was your dad in private practice? He practiced until he was 83 years old. And he'll be 90 in April. It's amazing. <laughs> it really is amazing that he practiced until age 83. Yeah. Would you say that he connected to the passion as if he were young and, and rushing around to the homes. And I, I'm curious, did he still visit the homes as he got older? No, what happened, I mean, medicine changed. And so, you know, he became, from a single practitioner to, he became the senior partner in a five- or six-man group by the time um, he retired. And at that point, you know, medicine had become much more 
office and hospital-based rather than um, home health, although at one point he did take a job as a, uh, he was a part-time home health um, director at the hospital, but he, he didn't actually make house calls at that point in his 80s, I have to say. Yeah, no, I was going to say that that would truly be unbelievable. <laughs> Well, I think if that had been the practice, I mean, he was in Baltimore. You know, of course, it was. You know, weather doesn't. You know, winter time isn't the easiest to be driving. Although he drove until he was eighty-seven or eighty-eight. Um, but I think that, um, you know, that that um, he he's always enjoyed that interaction with patients and and had a very um, uh, a huge number of of uh, old people who you know were were his age by the time he retired. I mean, that he had had been his patient since they were young. So he grew old with his patients. He grew old with his patients, exactly. It's wonderful. And to me, that was always the great model, um, and I still wish that we had more of that today. I agree with you. I know our audience is eager to hear about your career as a novelist. <laughs> your okay. first novel was published in 1982. What motivated you to start writing novels? And how have your other careers impacted on your success as a novelist? Okay. Well, again, these are not the easiest questions to answer because they're, they're little fits and starts in terms of, of writing the novels. What happened was I actually had started to write a, a book about managed care and um, tried to get uh, publishers on the East Coast interested in what HMOs were doing and what my husband and I both felt were uh, directions that they were taking that we thought were maybe misdirections. Uh, this was in the 80s. Uh, and I remember a publisher in New York saying to me, what is an HMO? And when I explained, they said, well, that's what you crazy Californians would do, but this, this is something that would never uh, take off in, in terms of the, you know, the country and certainly on the East Coast. So um, frustrated, I uh, had talked to a couple of friends who said, you know, if you why not do what Robin Cook uh, has done, which is to write novels, but within the, the context of a fiction, put in your ideas about how you feel about medicine. In other words, write a medical, say, a medical mystery. And so I thought a lot about that, and I actually began to write uh, my first, and unpublished, I have to say, and I didn't even try to peddle it, book about uh, managed care, but it was, it was really too much of a rant, <laughs> and it wasn't a very well-written book. But it got me very interested in the idea of writing again and writing and writing fiction. And so the very first novel I wrote, which was called Double Illusion, was actually based on an, uh, an incident that happened at our hospital. This is where a, a very bizarre story about a nurse who had um, was stolen babies from nurseries, but not just one. She had gone from Texas until California, where she was eventually arrested, and there were nine children living in her home that she was raising that she had stolen from individual nurseries over the years. So we took, we, I took that story, the idea of that story, and basically developed a psychological thriller. And, and luckily was, was published and did very well. Your latest novel is Rabbit in the Moon, which takes place in China. Take it from there, Deborah. <laughs> okay. Well, Rabbit in the Moon is our, our most ambitious novel. And by the way, all of, of the, the novels I've written and published so far have been co-written with my husband. Um, it's it's uh, a novel that is an international thriller, as you said. It takes place in China, Korea, Hong Kong, Macau, uh, of course, Los Angeles, and Washington. These are all places that we've we've uh, traveled and spent time. 
the story is basically the story of strong-willed Dr. Lily Kwan, who's an American-born Chinese and a medical resident in Los Angeles. And when she challenges her chief of medicine and risks losing a coveted fellowship, she decides to accept an invitation to study medicine for a few months in China. It's an impulsive decision, partly based on a promise that she's made to her dying mother that she would someday visit the home of her ancestors. Uh, and little does Lily know that she's really she's going to become a pawn in a deadly international conspiracy as greedy and ambitious men vie to gain control of her grandfather's discovery of the secret of long life. Tell us what rabbit in the moon means. Oh, okay. The title has nothing to do with uh, astrology. It's based on uh, old Chinese folklore. According to legend, there's said to be a rabbit in the moon that is pounding on the elixir of life. And there are many, many stories that go along with this, but that's essentially the essence of, of why we, we chose that title. Your next novel is Dead Air. <laughs> Can you share an advanced peek? Sure. Uh, well, Dead Air is coming out December of '09, not this December, so you have a whole year. It's the first in a series uh, about Sammy Green. Uh, Sammy's a young journalist student who, in this first book, gets her own radio talk show, and she uses the, the radio show as a forum to discuss controversial campus issues in the first book, including the idea that teaching has taken a backseat to research. Uh, when one of her professors, who's just won the annual teaching award, dies unexpectedly, she begins to suspect that, that his death is, is murder and not suicide. And her investigation leads to clues that point to an unethical experiment being conducted using students as subjects. Of course, the more she finds out, the more Sammy's life is in jeopardy. Well, I guess I don't want to ask you how it ends, because I certainly <laughs> don't want to spoil it for our audience. Before we go on to your personal life, I'd like to step back a bit to the point at which you left UCLA and talk about why and how you became an entrepreneur. Again, you were propelled this time to entrepreneurship. Right. Well, I, as I told you, my uh, boss had suggested that I get an MBA, and I did that, and we completed the executive MBA program in 1988. Uh, two things happened as a result of the MBA program. First, my responsibilities expanded in, in my job at UCLA to include things like uh, strategic planning and budgeting and contracting for outside specialty care. I uh, started doing a recruitment of, of all the practitioners. I had been doing that, but really expanded the role to the whole, uh, all of student health. Um, I was involved with quality assurance, utilization management, um, and, and I actually helped to develop a computerized patient record to capture data for outcomes measurements. So that was one thing. And the second thing, that, and most surprising, was that I started to get calls from recruiters that's uh, alerting me to other opportunities in medical management. Suddenly, I, you know, I'd been told that my experience as both a clinician and a manager in two managed care settings, both at Kaiser and UCLA, coupled with the, with the MBA degree, uh, made me a strong potential candidate for many organizations looking to import the kind of expertise and knowledge. So as flattered and curious, I started to explore a few of these opportunities. Um, what what happened was I had never worked with recruiters before, and so I, had, I really had no idea what to expect from them. Um, they'd call the office and, and identify themselves as representing a particular job opportunity, and then they might inquire as to whether I wanted to be considered, and if not, did I know someone who might who might like that job. But usually the recruiter, it turned out, had minimal uh, information about the, the uh, organization, 
and they asked very few questions about my management experience and nothing about my interests or my career goals. So often when I went to go out to the interviews, I found that the opportunity was, was entirely different from what the recruiter had described to me. Either the job scope was, was totally different, the organization turned out to be you know, a different kind of organization than they'd said. Um, so, so you seemed, were the wrong fit, am I correct? Exactly, that I wasn't the right fit. And it seemed clear that these recruiters weren't really serving their clients very well. They were, you know, because, as you know, sending an inappropriate or disinterested candidate is a waste of everybody's time and money. But what I came to learn that even negative uh, situations like these turn out to be uh, potential opportunities. And I ultimately made that next career move from physician management to medical management entrepreneur because of that quote-unquote negative experience. Did you feel that you knew how you could conduct the search so that you would be able to find the right fits for your clients? Exactly. Well, it started in the beginning. I would actually at some of these interviews say, you know, I'm not right for this job, but I know exactly who it would be. And every once in a while that those people would be hired. Uh, my husband said to me, you just got an MBA degree. Why are you doing this for free? You should really... You're good at it, and you should think about doing this seriously. And so I... I he sounds like a great career coach. He's wonderful. He's, he's always been great. Um, and what happened was I... Um, but, you know, here was, here was again, a, a, a fork in the road. Do I leave a, a very, not only comfortable job at UCLA, but one I really, really did enjoy uh, to take, you know, a leap and, and really start... Uh, uh, something on my own, which, as you know, is is um, often fraught with with uh, less success uh, for most people than you know than than you necessarily would assume. And so, I decided to do to do it kind of part time and uh, took on a couple of of searches that uh, uh, that I had uh, been asked to do. And and as they became uh, you know as I was successful in doing that, I I decided to to finally leave UCLA and, and start my own company. And to answer your question, yes, I really felt very strongly that I had unique skill set in terms of my own experience as a physician um, and a manager and understanding the healthcare system um, and was much more willing to be a mentor to both uh, an organization and to the, and to the potential candidates. It's interesting that... Throughout your career, you've increased the risk. Are you aware of that? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Tell us what enabled you to do that. Well, I, I probably have to give all the um, the kudos to my husband. I think that um, you know we, if you if you're ready to talk about my personal life, we we yes. met in yes. four let's, days. Let's, <laughs> yeah. No, yeah. Let's let's talk about your personal life. Okay. Um, I know that your husband, Joel Schlein, is a family medicine physician who's been by your side for how many years? 38 years. That's a long time. And, he's, <laughs> and, you're, and you're both still uh, strong, so to speak. Very, very happily married. Yes. I know. Um, he's also your co-author of Rabbit in the Moon, Double Illusion, and Wednesday's Child. Take it from there. Well, Joel and I met in medical school. Uh, we we started talking one day, and four days later we were engaged, and six weeks later we were married. Um, and Joel was just getting ready to start a residency in um, 
as an, eye, an ophthalmology. He was going to be an eye surgeon. Um, and I was, you know, not sure exactly what my special would be at that point, but I knew that I didn't want to be a surgeon. So, um, How did you I, know you didn't want to be a surgeon? <laughs> well, maybe it was the times, you know. Perhaps today I might feel differently, but at the time I really was following my father's lead in terms of wanting to be uh, a, a, a general practitioner, whether an internist or, or a family physician, and, um, you know, wasn't really that interested in, in in surgery in the sense of, of I saw surgeons as people who didn't necessarily have the kind of one-on-one relationship that I wanted with my patients. Um, so they cut, they cut and ran? Is that what you mean? Is? <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to be that way, but I think that's the stereotype. Anyway. Yeah. Um, well, I worked and, with a surgeon for a number of years and, and helped him establish a rectal cancer center. And he used to call me from the operating room while he was doing his surgical procedures to chat to find out what was going on. <laughs> right. So I think that you you picked the right fit for yourself. Right. But, you know, what happened with Joel is that, you know, he said to me one day in the middle of his of his first year, we're never going to be together if I'm an eye, if he's an eye surgeon and I'm a family physician. So let's uh, he 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 is the the risk taker. He quit his residency, which to this day he's still um, well known for that, infamous. And um, he said, "Well, well, you know, he waited. I was a year behind him. He waited till I finished my internship, and then um, we went out to California and looked at the Kaiser system where we did our residencies uh, in family medicine. So." Tell he was little, really the impetus. Tell us a little bit about his background. What enabled him to be a risk taker? Because it sounds like you're more conservative, he's more of a risk taker, and he's helped you take the risk from what you've described. Right. So well, what uh, happened in his early life to encourage well, that? Right. Well, he, neither one of his parents were um, went beyond college, and... Um, he was really the first one that uh, that went to went to even went to college and medical school, so that um, a lot of what uh, what who Joel is is really you know is, is something that he has within him himself. I think that you know that that just sense that he can do whatever he puts his mind to, and um, it's very it fortunately was catching because the more that he encouraged me, the more I saw that it was possible to do the things that you know that that. Uh, you know, he said, you, you can do it. Let's step back to getting engaged after four dates, am I correct? Four days. Not days. days. Four <laughs> days. Okay. All right. right. You spent four days together? Well, and I mean, it was, we were both working. It was uh, summer. We were both working in an emergency room. And uh, so we, you know, we So spent, you literally did spend four days so together. four days. <laughs> In the emergency room, okay. so to speak. But we, okay. never, we spent a lot of time talking about our priorities, about the things that we were passionate about. Good. About Let's hear more about that because I want to figure out, uh, with your input, how you determined that he would be the right fit husband. Well, one of the things that, uh, you know, I've been around mostly men in school. There were only eight women in my class. And most of the guys didn't even want to date a medical student, uh, let alone encourage a female to be a doctor at that point. This was in the 70s. Um, but um, that was not true of Joel, so that was number one. 
Uh, number two, he, he talked about the fact that, that uh, relationship was really a priority for him, uh, that marriage was something that was, you know, was very important. And um, that really, uh, to me, was quite unique at the time, uh, in my experience of talking to most of the classmates and male friends that I had, you know, that that, that was not necessarily, that career came first. But he said that, you know, they didn't have to be mutually exclusive. And so I felt that that was really um, very refreshing and and very seductive, I guess. Well, uh, also, too, at a young age, it sounds like he had thought through about how to balance professional life with personal. Right. He was very, I think Joe was always very uniquely mature, you know, for his age. And um, uh, because he, you know, he really had to do a lot on his own, I mean, his family Although they were supportive in the sense of emotionally, they you know they really had not had an edu- the kind of education that uh, that my father, for example, had. So um, so he he you know he he's someone who learns a lot on his own. He's very uh, wise, I guess, and always was about about those kinds of things. And and I think you know his you know the word passion. I mean, can't be understated. I think just the excitement about about life and and all the possibilities really was was really terrific i i just you know have found it uh impossible to stay away <laughs> i gather uh you've been you've been with him for 38 years so i believe that it has been impossible <laughs> to stay away right let's go further about balancing the personal and the professional life what are the decisions that you've made along the way and how have you both changed your careers to continue this balance? Right. Well, the first thing, of course, is that Joel changed from from surgery to you know to family medicine. Um, the second thing was we talked long and hard about children. And at the time that I was uh, that we joined Kaiser, and as I said, I was the only woman in my department. There were a lot of demands on our on our schedules and you know early on it became very clear that we had to make a decision about whether um you know I would if we were going to have children if we you know I was going to stay working full time or not and I really didn't want to give up the full time career and you know we thought and talked and watched uh the few women that I knew uh in town who were physicians who had children and saw the difficulty that I thought that they had in terms of balancing at that time. Now things are different today, but at that time I I, I felt that, that um it was going to be too difficult to do it all very well, maybe for me anyway. And so we made a very conscious decision that we would not have children, although we you know dearly love kids and are very close to our nieces and nephews and have worked in in children's uh, organizations and so on, but but um, that was one decision that we made that was going to you know be important in terms of our ability to balance the, our careers with the rest of our lives. Talk about your high standards because that's really what you've just mentioned that you really want to perform at a level to set a standard against which no one can compete. Talk about that for us. Right. I, well, I think that that's that's probably. I mean, you've put it perfectly. It's is, is that whatever we you know we both decide to do, whether it's uh, medicine, practicing medicine, and being an administrator, doing you know recruiting, or or now writing novels, we want to. We you know it's important to feel that we have put our most of our you know our our, our optimal energy and passion into into that uh, that particular. Um, uh, 
path. Endeavor. So, endeavor, right, exactly. And so, um, and, you know, and, and so that's, for both of us, that's really been, been key. But I think it's also what's made everything exciting and fun. Because you've, you've changed in relation to your passion and in relation to, as you mentioned, the forks in the road. I'd like you to explore that a bit more about the forks in the road. Sometimes people are hesitant to explore. And how would you say you made the decisions to take the risk and to explore something new? I mean, I understand that Joel encouraged you, but at the same time, you still had to feel comfortable and confident to do that. Yeah, I, well, I think, the, you know, the first, you know, leap that we made from Kaiser was the hardest probably because, uh, you know, that It was really, secure. That, that was such a secure position, right. And so, uh, you know, if I thought about it long and hard, I probably would have had a heart attack maybe thinking that, you know, what the <laughs> heck did I do when, I put, when we put our letters of resignation in. But um, we just kept looking forward. But I would say that, you know, for any decision where you get a fork in the road, I think you have to look at what is the downside, what's the worst that can happen, and, um, you know, what is, what is, of course, the upside, and be willing to accept the possibility that you might fail and not see that as, as something uh, terrible that you can't, uh, you know, that you can't overcome. I think for a lot of people that that's the hardest thing, and, and I you know, and I guess because I'm lucky that I do have a very supportive husband, um, and I don't mean just you know in the financial sense, but I mean emotionally. That's really important. Uh, who's always very proud of whatever I do. That that um, you know that I feel that that if something doesn't work out, if the next book doesn't get published, of course I'll be devastated. But you know I'll survive. <laughs> don't worry, it will be published. <laughs> I mean I've uh, read. Right. I've read uh, Rabbit in the Moon, and it, it's written beautifully, and it's dynamic and exciting, so I don't think you have to concern yourself with that. <laughs> Thank you. Passion is an apt description of how you pursued your professional and personal life, in which you constantly achieved success and acclaim. What advice do you have for our listeners? Well, I would say you really need to think about, first of all, think about what, what is your passion. I think a lot of people that I speak to, you know, you can tell in their tone of their voice that they're not excited about what they're doing. But if you probe to ask them really what are you passionate about, very often people look at you kind of strangely because they haven't thought about that. Um, so I think, you know, understanding what makes you excited really is, is important. And um, Can you explain the... The um, it's like a physical change in the body. I mean, you as a physician hopefully can explain the physical <laughs> changes because when I try to explain to my coaching clients about passion, frequently they are not or have not experienced it. How would you explain it so that somebody knows when they're feeling passion? Well, I think it's you know, first of all it's feeling excited about getting up every day and doing you know and going to your job or doing or sitting at your desk if you're working out of the house. Um, I I think what happens to a lot of people that I talk with is that they get into a rut. They 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 uh, or they or they look for the next job. They know they're not happy and they look for the next job based on 
the job title or the uh, the amount of money that they'll make in that job rather than really whether it fulfills this this uh, emotional need or passion, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, it's, it is very hard to describe, and it's not just, you know, your heart beating fast or that sort of thing. It's really feeling really happy and excited about about uh, what you're doing every day. And, um, you know, I just talked to a friend whose daughter is a physician, and she's gone through years of training and just finished her residency and started her first year at work, and, and her mother said to me, and I watched her make a decision about, about where she was going to be working, and I thought that she might be making a mistake, but I, I don't know her well enough to really say anything. And her mother said, you know, she's not very happy. Um, she just said it's okay. Now, if, she, if I were coaching her, I would say, you know, that, that she, she really needs to perhaps make a change and, you know, pick something that, um, in her field, of course, at this point, because she's put a lot of time and effort into it, but there must be something, some other uh, place she can work or some other um, area that expands on what she's already learned that will, you know, that will bring that kind of excitement to her that she doesn't feel now because, you know, after just working one year in her job, she's got a long career ahead of her, and that seems such a shame. Well, is she, what is she unhappy about? Is she unhappy about the particular position, or is she unhappy about the specialty? What is she unhappy about? I think uh, probably a little bit of both, but I think she's doing re- rehabilitation medicine, uh, but focused on doing uh, you know, epidural you know, procedures for back injuries, and apparently with the economy, the patients have changed in terms of their adulation that she once, you know, that she got a year ago from them. For one thing, you know, the other thing is that she, like I experienced with my job at Kaiser, is um, being asked to see more patients uh, more quickly, and that's, you know, uh, clearly not something that. Um, you know that she's happy about, and I can understand that. So, well, maybe she the, doesn't feel ready that she can um, see so many patients. Right, but well, not only that she doesn't feel ready. I think that maybe she rightly doesn't feel that you know that the time that they want her to take is really appropriate. That she that she should be able to give more time to the patients. I, I think a lot of physicians now are, are feeling that and, and feeling very burned out because, um, you know, they're. They're just uh, the reimbursements have decreased, and you know, there's, in order to make up for that, there's this this treadmill that they've gotten on onto, which which I think takes away the fun of, of being able to interact with patients and spend more time with them, and ultimately, I think affects quality. Oh, I think that's is no question. I think if you don't have enough time, how do you really figure out um, what the diagnoses can be? Because right. as you, you as a physician know that it can be more than one. Exactly. And the other thing with this young lady is that she's single, and because she's working hard, she hasn't had time to find the balance in her life between career and, and a social life. And, again, understandably, that's, you know, that, that makes for not such a happy situation. She needs to find a Joel. She, <laughs> she needs a Joel, exactly. She needs a Joel. <laughs> So I need to go into the marriage broker business next. That's right. <laughs> that's going to be your next. That's going to be your next entrepreneurial adventure right. here. Well, I'm sure you know that that you you know many times in recruiting you certainly are dealing with you know with the family picture, right? And 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 absolutely, I, I absolutely. I often find right that I'm advising people not to take a job because it might mean they're moving their family to a place that I know they're not going to be happy, or they're having to move and leave their family behind while the wife or husband 
sells the house or whatever, and they're going to be separated for a long time. I, I personally don't think that's a good idea. And sometimes people take positions and then think they're going to feel okay about it and are very disgusted and disappointed because it ends up being the wrong fit because the balance isn't right between their career and their family. Right. I think that, you know, when you ask me this to, to give advice, I mean, I, I found a partner in Joel who was someone who, was, who like me, spent a lot of time thinking about you know, what our priorities are. I think most people probably don't do that um, ahead of time that they kind of, you know, they get into a, a path, whether it be, say, medical school, you, you know, you go through the four years and then you finish that and you do a residency and then you finish that and then you look for a job. I'm not, along the way, I, I get the feeling that a lot of people really don't think through what it's going to mean at the end of the road in terms of what, you know, what their lives are going to be like and how they'd like to live those lives. If you had it to do all over again, are there any changes, looking back, okay, mm-hmm. that you would make? You know, I really can't say that I would, um, which is which is good. <laughs> which <laughs> is wonderful. Always, which is rare. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Joel and I talk about that a lot. What would what would we do differently? Of course, if I knew the stock market was going to go up or down, that might be help. But <laughs> but no, in, in terms of career, I would say. Um, you know, I'm not sorry that I left Kaiser. Looking back, I think it's a wonderful way to practice medicine. But if I hadn't left, I wouldn't have seen all the other opportunities. I wouldn't have had the other opportunities. I wouldn't have learned uh, uh, how to be a manager. I, I wouldn't have, have gotten into the recruiting. I wouldn't have met so many people and traveled as much as I have. So, um, so no, I, I think, you know, each, each uh, sort of path that I've taken has really uh, been pretty exciting and fun. Deborah, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for joining us today on Win Without Competing. I look forward to inviting you back soon. Well, thank you very, very much. I've enjoyed it, and and I look forward to coming back again. And good luck on every single forthcoming novel. (laughs) Thank you. In January 2000, My first guest is Pat Lynch, founder and CEO of Women's Radio on the Web. Passion, commitment, and speaking up have propelled Pat from a U.S. Senate staffer to the first woman to own an advertising marketing firm in the South to establishing the web's first nationally syndicated talk channel, the WR Channel, standing for Women's Radio. You can do it too. Please join me again on Wednesday, January 14th at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Before the next show, Email me your career questions which you would like me to answer on Win Without Competing. My address is Dr. Barrow, that's D-R-B-A-R-R-O, at winwithoutcompeting.com. To speak with me, call 310-441-5305.
Until next time, remember this trigger tip. Change your mindset to the right fit method and your career and life will flourish. Goodbye for now from Dr. Arlene, career coach one and author of Win Without Fear.